Why is everyone listening to GlobalTalkRadio.com? Because it's the future of talk radio. Every day, more and more people are finding Internet Radio as not just an alternative media, but as a replacement to traditional AM and FM broadcast stations. Internet Radio offers a wider variety of programs, convenient on-demand listening that meets your schedule, and fewer commercial interruptions. And GlobalTalkRadio.com is already leading the way by matching this content with a highly targeted Internet audience. GlobalTalkRadio.com offers its listeners one of the widest programming varieties on the Internet, from business and finance to self-improvement, paranormal, health, literature, romance, politics, and more. There are also opportunities for prospective hosts who would like to host their own weekly or one-time talk shows. Want to learn more? Check us out at www.globaltalkradio.com and see the future of talk radio today. You're listening to globaltalkradio.com. The following program is provided for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed during the show do not necessarily reflect those of the station or the host. There are no guarantees to the information presented in this material, and the claims and results of any cannot be guaranteed. As always, you should consult with a professional before making any decisions that may impact your legal, financial, or medical well-being. This recording is copyrighted, all rights reserved. No portion may be used or reproduced in any way without express written permission. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Sales Talk Live. This is your host, Frank Belzer, and uh, I always like it when we have someone with the initials PhD after their name because, man, does that add credibility to the show. And I also love it when we have someone who's a, a reputable author because that usually generates lots of interest and gives us a lot to talk about. And so we're very lucky today because we have both in one person. And we're welcoming Dr. Joni Carley to the show. Welcome, Joni. Thank you, Frank. And as usual, I want to let everybody know that the show is brought to you by Kerwin & Associates, a leading sales development company based in Central Mass, but helping companies all over the world with their sales force and sales teams and sales leadership. Um, we'll start by getting a nice introduction, if we could, from you, Joni. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and how you got into this and all that kind of good background stuff that we, we need to know about. Okay. Well, I'm based in the Philadelphia area, and I work on site or a lot by phone. And uh, I work at the United Nations with leaders there on leadership development, especially on values-driven leadership. I work with businesses. And what we found out is that when organizations are driven by values, their profits go up, their share prices go up, their retention is better, their innovation is better. So that's my field of expertise. And I came to that really through a lot of expertise in coaching and, and dabbled around in uh, personal coaching when I first got started and realized that that was not my niche that uh, there's some great work being done with, with personal coaching and life coaching. But uh, for me, that was a little too close to the domain of therapy and that my best work is done with more like in the domain of Olympics. So the people mm. I work with are people who are strong usually already and uh, they're looking to do what Olympians are doing because Olympians don't hire a coach to fix a broken ankle they hire a coach because they're at that edge and they need to, you know, what's the difference between being a gold medalist and not even finishing can be a tenth of a second, less. 
Yep. You know, and, and that's really where the best return on investment in coaching is, too. A lot of people will hire me to problem solve, and over the course of my career, that's often an entry point. But we know from the studies that the return on investment in coaching comes when you coach at what I call the leaderful edge. And I have 11 studies on my website that demonstrate that uh, at leaderfuledge.com that you really do better when you coach at your edge rather than constantly looking at problems. Hmm. Okay, so so what? Uh, oh, and, and and to go back into go my history a little bit, I'm sorry, I kind of jumped jumped the conversation <laughs> on you a bit there. But I've traveled the world. I, I really have always been since since very young a seeker of what's up about human potential, mm-hmm. and I I had I always was looking below the surface, trying to get to the core of it because there's so many methods, and I took them all. I went to every kind of workshop, personal development, professional development. I many courses at universities with top people, with not-so-known people, went into monasteries. I was in the jungle with shamans in the African bush with medicine. I mean, I've just done it all in temples in Asia. And uh, really looking at how do you get past the methodologies because I'm sure your listeners have seen a thousand and one methods that when they get back, they're all, they seem fabulous, and then you get back to the office and, hmm, they, they just don't, fit or they just don't make sense after the first three days and somehow they fall to the wayside and you may keep a little of this or a little bit of that. But I was looking for what creates sustainable change? What creates the kind of change that's not just sustainable because that word started to bug me in, in the values-driven leadership circles, of course, you know, I run into the sustainability conversation a lot and it's important. But Frank, if I bumped into you in the street and I said, how you doing? And you told me you were sustainable. I'd be worried about you. <laughs> so, you know, to me, it's more about vitality. And so I was looking at what is that spark, that spark that's unique in each of us but common to all of us. And when we light that spark and when we get that spark really juiced up and, and well-sourced, that's when sales happen. That's when dollars flow. That's when people have work-life balance. That's when you start to see winning in the way that I like to define mm-hmm. winning. Wonderful. Well, there's a lot there for us to get started with. So you, you you graduated with your with your degree, and you could have went in a bunch of different directions. What what prompted you to say, you know what, I, I've got to get with all the experts out there and all these sort of predetermined paths that were out there. What do you think it was that made you kind of want to step outside the box and do something a little bit different? Well, it was kind of the other way around. I was already outside of the box. Okay. <laughs> And I chose the degree that I did because uh, there weren't many around that could contain all the different pieces I was bringing in. And uh, my degree is not a Ph.D., it's a doctorate. And mm-hmm. in, in academia, that means something. In the real world, there's not a whole lot of difference. <laughs> okay. But, um, and uh, my doctorate is in the reinvention of work. Okay. And when it came back time to go to grad school and pull all these world of experiences on the ground with the clients, in, in the blue sky with the monks and, and, you know, all the different kinds of people I'd been as scientists and, and uh, thought leaders and people I'd been around, I didn't want to defend. I knew that there was something emerging in the culture that wasn't being captured in standard academia and it wasn't being captured in standard business procedures. And so I was really trying to cut at that essence, and I, I searched for a program that would have that focus where I could pull this into a package that could serve. And um, so that's my MO. I'm about service. And 
when I looked at what was out there, and it was really just a lot more regimentation of the same old thing. And what we saw in the financial failure was that we've set new benchmarks on the scale of failure. And so I knew that that paradigm, first of all, was never a fit for me, and it wasn't, I, I wasn't going to be able to learn enough techniques and, and ways and, and methodologies in the world to ever feel satisfied or like I, could, I was serving like I knew service needed to happen in the world now. And so where, where do people put most of their creativity and most of their energy? They put it into the workplace. And so when we transform the workplace to be more compassionate, more just, more have more vitality, more life energy, then we really are transforming the world because that's where things happen from. And when you transform leadership, it has to happen from leadership. You know, certainly fabulous things happen from grassroots, and it's important that things happen there too, but it's about leaders. When leaders make the shift or when they just open up their minds to that shift can be made and they're willing to kind of bite the bullet of, of what that takes in some personality types to do that, then you really see opportunity for transformation that pays. So when you're traveling the world and you're going through this process of investigating different, different thoughts, different ideologies, different beliefs, um, how are you making that determination? I mean, I'm sure you hear stuff that's kind of interesting, but how are you making the determination to say, you know what, this is, A, a really effective piece of information that I can translate and use in, in, in Western culture and in business, uh, but also how do you know it actually is effective or that it is going to work? Well, sometimes you don't. Um, sometimes I have the kind of personality that's easily able, and, and I think this is a technique that a lot of people can learn, and a lot of people have it naturally too, uh, that, that you go in with an open mind where you set your own predetermined ideas aside and really take in and wear, you know, deeply own that other perspective you're hearing, even if it goes against the grain. You're just taking it on for a while to really own it as your own. And then you revisit your own ideas and see where, it, where it, the mix is. So to, to really embrace something fully is the first way to see whether or not it's going to work. And some of it's a sniff test, you know. Some of it is like, this feels like nonsense to me. So, <laughs> You know, and some of it is just as you go, it's kind of a faith thing because I'll be with someone and I'll remember something that a shaman told me and, mm -hmm. you know, I hadn't thought about it in years, but there it is. And, and that's part of the creative context, process. Yeah. And that's part of the process that we need to teach leaders. And I think salespeople especially need this because there's that, that intuition, there's that inner GPS that tells you whether something's on or when to say something. And artists just go totally with this, right? Mm -hmm. they, they have some kind of inkling or impression and all of a sudden it's coming out their pianos or out their voices or out of their paintbrushes or their typewriter, you know, their, their typewriters and their computers. Yep. Yep. You know, it's, it's coming, uh, it flows. But all of us can capitalize on that. That, that isn't, they don't own that stream of energy that's called creativity. But unfortunately, and this is why I didn't want to go into a traditional business program, that idea of, of being creative, being in the moment, has been so trashed, and uh, even when it's not overtly put down, that idea is not developed and nurtured in business schools, and in fact, it's developed out of people. Yep. Then they come yep. to the workplace, and they don't have this palette that you know maybe wasn't all that well developed to begin with, and here they are down the line, and it's so beat out of them, and they had so little time to develop that, that, that it's not available in their palette when it comes to being yeah. with a, a potential client. 
you're like you're, you're speaking my language, but you're not speaking my language. <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. Um, you Tell know, me what that the, means. Well, one of the things we run into with salespeople is it's the same thing you're talking about. They they have learned these very canned ways of dealing with people. Um, they've learned a very uh, they focus so much on the process and on the verbiage that they're saying that the human element has been extracted out of it, and they no longer sound natural. They sound like automatons and trying to put that back and get people to realize that a sales conversation should sound no different than, than the way you sound when you're talking with your friends. Or, and, and usually your instincts in a situation are going to be correct, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's been beaten out of people. I, it just resonates so much with us because we're, we're hearing that, we're finding that as we try and help salespeople all the time. You know, Jack Bogle, I just interviewed Jack Bogle from Vanguard. I have a leadership series on my website, uh, leaderful-edge.com. And uh, the series is 10 different leaders, and one of them is Jack Bogle, who started Vanguard Investments, which is the largest mutual fund company in the world. Mm -hmm. And he said he lectures in these business schools all the time. He's been around this world forever. And he said, you know, they never mention the word human being in business school. It's never in a text. And he said the implications of that are just extreme and, and really horrible, for, not only for business, but for the culture at large. Mm -hmm. And so that's why my work is about seven levels of leadership. And, you know, there are some of the mid-range levels are to get some best practices and good techniques. Those are good and those are important, but... Sometimes uh, you got to just throw them out to, to really be at present with people. You know, Oprah is a fabulous example. There's two ways of being. There's sort of the goals and methodologies, and then there's heuristics. Of course, this is a spectrum. It's not an either-or. But, but Oprah is 100% heuristic. And heuristic, I'll spell H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. So basically it means that you're present in the moment, that you're mm -hmm. so present, so human, so with it. Not that you didn't do your homework, you didn't learn all the techniques, and they're in your back pocket, but right. they're not your shield in front of you, and I think that's the distinction you're talking about. Oprah, you know, I wouldn't, I don't recommend being 100% heuristic like Oprah is, because I think it's really about being balanced between the two, but, but she helps us understand, because uh, she swung the pendulum so far in just going on her gut, going on her intuition, going on the humanity in a situation, and she's it worked. Yeah. You know, we, we, we usually recommend salespeople read some of Dan Millman's books <laughs> and, and actually get into that kind of almost Eastern philosophy when it comes to sales, where you can sit there in the moment and not get frazzled, not get upset by things. And what you were just saying resonated, too, that you, you, you might go and talk to a shaman or you might go and talk to one of these experts and you might have a totally different idea before you talk to them, but you need to embrace what they're saying and you need to... You need to to enjoy the, the dialogue. You need to enjoy the difference of opinion. Um, if you're ever going to have communication, it's going to, to help them see your side. And not just in sales and business, and not just in business leadership, but that's a worldwide problem. I think that's, I think that's, that's universal. We've got that issue all over the world with people not seeking to understand other people's ideas before they make judgments. Well, judgments or they defend. Mm-hmm. They, you know, people get into really just 
two people defending two opposite sides, and not, there's no spark in that kind of conversation. You, you have two people who walk away with what they came with, and so yep. there's no possibility in that kind of conversation. So I think one of the triggers that I've always found in myself personally that, that I work with and I think is somewhat universal is when you find yourself in a position that you're defending, that, that if you can flag that in the moment, and, and the way these things usually work is you flag it in bed late at night, and then you flag it at the end of the day, and then eventually you get to the point where you can flag it in the moment and do right, something right, right. there. Yep. But, you know, if you, if you watch for those kinds of things, you say, well, I was taking a defensive posture. I hear myself. Uh, and you can even look for where does that happen in your body? Is your, is your, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are your shoulders coming up to your ears? Is your, are you humping over a little bit? Are you pulling back? You know, where? Get some body awareness of, of how does it show up for you when you start to defend your position. Or when you, because basically it all comes down to some sort of fear. And when you can stare that in the face and say, okay, you know, I'm just going to release from, I'm still going to have all my opinions. They're going to be sitting right next to me no matter what I do anyway. So I might as well just put them aside lovingly, appreciatingly. It took me a long time to get them, so it's okay that I have them. But let me just lay them aside for a moment and let me really hear and take in and embrace what's being said, chew around as if it was my own, and then let me go back to my opinions, because even if I still have them, they're going to be enhanced out of having considered the other way. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, Eastern philosophy, because a lot of what I write about is the yin and yang of success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just looking, yeah, I read that in your book over here. <laughs> so so let's let's talk a little bit about some of what you say in the book, because I think it's that's, that's why I reached out to you, and I think there's some stuff in here that can be really helpful to salespeople. And you already brought up one thing, so let's start with that, even though it's not the first part of the book. You talk about your inner GPS, which is a nice nice piece of terminology. So let's talk a little bit about that. Could you give us some examples of what that is and, and how that might resonate or how, how our sales audience might be able to say, okay, I, I need to have that? Yeah, well, the good news is that there's no place to go out and buy one that's already installed. <laughs> and, you know, good. The, the work is in opening it and, you know, listening to it. And the neat thing is that if we can get past ourselves, you know, the inner GPS is like the real GPS. And, and coaching actually is a, is a really good way, not just a self-plug, but, but truly. You know, if, if you were driving with a spouse or your boss or something and you miss a turn, you know, that's, there could be some serious discomfort come out of you missing the turn. If you on your GPS, if you miss the turn, it just says recalculating or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it takes you to the next turn. It's, it, there's no emotional expense to that. And so, when we tune into our inner GPS, when we're really on it, it's kind of that same quality. It's past the world of judgment. It's past the world of, of filtering. It's past the world of of all the kind of nonsense we bring into the the spectrum of our lives. And and it's just data. And so we have the hard data from, okay, in front of you, you've got there's X amount of customers in, in X, amount, X territory, and the, the possibility for sales is X, and, you know, the problems are X, Y, Z. So that's one form of data. The other form of data is coming from this inner GPS, and the question is access to it. And so what brings access to it, circles back to what we were talking about with creativity. It's those unbillable hours and in the past, and this is what Jack Bogle was getting at, to develop as a whole person was something that business schools taught
taught against, right? You don't take time off if you're a good business person. You work longer hours. Mm-hmm. Or you you really ignore your kids. Then you're a great <laughs> business person. You know, we just know that stuff is crazy now. But 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 that that information that is crazy is still not really filtered into the workforce. We still have a lot of fears that are driving us to believe in this old paradigm that we know, again, it's that new benchmarks on the scale of failure. We know there's some serious issues with it. And so getting out in nature, getting, you know, when, when you feel your back going up or when you feel uh, threatened or upset by something at work, to have the presence of mind to take a walk. I'm even a big believer in bathroom stalls, you know, like walk in there and get five minutes by yourself mm. if that's what it takes to just reconnect, take some deep breaths. Uh, get into a meditation or a yoga class, or if you're connected to any kind of religion, do what satisfies you there. And if, if religion isn't it for you, then then some kind of quiet place or or a quiet way or uh, inspirational reading, good talks with people, with people who are mentors to to because a lot of what our inner intuition tells us doesn't you can't always find that in textbooks to corroborate it, but. I'll tell you, I, I interviewed 10 people as, in this leadership series, and uh, one after another. Some of them aren't so well-known, but some of them were uh, Howard Behar, who took Starbucks International. He said the same. He confirmed everything that we're talking about here, that it's developing that inner leader. It's taking that time to get to your kid's baseball game because you're not going to be a good person on the job. Not that you can scoff off the hours that you you know, you have to have your integrity and, and accountability. But but to bring in that balance that people like Starbucks and, and uh, Vanguard and uh, more and more companies know is that when you have whole people, when you develop leadership from the inside out, then you've got them share prices go up, profits go up, retention goes up, innovation goes up. You know, we know that there's just a ton of things that work better. And a lot of the things, we haven't even begun to learn how to measure yet. We're really good at measuring the money and the goals and things like that, but we're not so good at measuring the softer side of things, which is the yin. Yang is the goals and, and that kind of stuff, and the yin is, is these softer indicators. And it's going to be a few generations before we really truly understand what they mean and what what they indicate, but but there's more and more data, and the data is very clear that it's a balance of these two things mm-hmm. that create strong economies, and you can see that in the stock market because the um, socially responsible index, the SRI funds, where they screen companies for basically how well their value is driven, and uh, if you make the cut, you can be on these indexes. Well, those indexes are rarely sexy. You know, you're not going to find really high, high returns, but you don't see real lows either. You see a stability and a strength there over time that is, we can't measure this yet, but we sure can take it to the bank. That we know. You know, I, I heard I heard some interesting, um, I heard an interesting speaker a while ago just to this point you're talking about, um, and he had done, a, there was, he was talking about an analysis between the workers at Airbus and the workers at Boeing. And they're two very similar companies. They both make airplanes. Um, but the company Airbus was very strict on making sure the employees used their vacation time. Um, they forced them to use the vacation time. And Boeing had a policy where you could cash in your vacation time at the end of the year and take less vacation. Um, and he monitored the productivity rates for the average employee. Turns out that even though, you know, Airbus is in Europe with 
a lot of French people, the, the amount of time they were actually working was far higher than the Boeing workers because they were more relaxed when they, they, they had less stress in their life. They, they were less wound up. They were able to focus um, on their work when they were there. So that kind of is what you're talking about is having that, that balance between what's happening career-wise and what's happening outside of your work. Yes, and it's more than that. As a person, as a leader, you need that balance, but the whole organization mm. needs that balance, which you're pointing to. I use the Barrett tools because they're the first things that I've found that can quantify culture. So we get that, the good data and we get the softer side, and, and uh, these are great tools. And uh, I use them with individuals for their own leadership development, and I use them with whole organizations. And they really are about that. They're really about... And, and one thing they also measure is entropy. Entropy is lost energy. So if somebody at Boeing is coming to work all burned out, well, there's a good chance that 20, 30, 40, 50% of their day, they're, they're not so productive. And if you get 100 people like that, 30 of them might as well not come to work every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And that's very expensive. And that's why when... Organizations align their cultures around values. That's why their all their numbers jump so dramatically because yep. it, it creates a fertile culture. Yep. Now, you, you back to the book. You talk about choices that people have to make, and I thought this was really interesting from a selling perspective because one of the things that salespeople deal with are, you know, is the decision making process that the person on the other side of the desk is is going through. Um, and you talk about them sometimes knowing that the answer is yes, but having a part of them that says, you know, don't, don't, don't make a decision yet. So I thought that would be interesting to talk about how, what are some things that salespeople could do to make it easier for the decision makers they deal with, who are leaders um, usually, um, to, to, how, how can they walk them through that process of getting to a decision? Like what causes the no? I guess that's what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. Well, I think what causes the no in people, first of all, needs to be honored. Mm-hmm. And so often we want to fight against it, and then that just pushes people in the kind of corner we were talking about. Yep. The yep. And so, first of all, just having the courage to go to the no with them, because we're often threatened to go there. We're, we're taught everything has to be winning, 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 mm-hmm. winning. And to look for the win for the client. And if the win for the client is a no, then have the, the trust to allow a no to be in that space. Sometimes it's because there's no space for no, and then you waste your time trying to get to a yes that's never going to happen. And so, you know, to to use, again, sharpen that inner GPS, and if you're sitting with a no, move on. Mm -hmm. You know, caringly, but move on. No, we, uh, we, we, we always teach people that it's important to make the no okay for the person, you know? no, I don't want to walk in the street, there's a car coming, I don't want to be hit. There's another situation where I might want to say, no, I don't want to cross the street because, um, you know, that tribe over there is headhunters, and i got to think twice, right? Well, I crossed that street and went in and spent time with the tribe of headhunters, and I had immense gain in my life from that. So, and in any situation, you've got to look at what is that person. Are they in the know of fear? 
And if they are, then you need to get at what their fears are. And this is where your own humanity matters, because if they're fearful, they're sure not going to expose it to somebody they don't know so well who's trying to sell them something. Right, right. So, you know, if, if you can fall down into your own humanity, into your own fears, your own insecurities, and relate as, as a person, you know, I, I know your pain kind of thing, or, or you know, tap into that inner GPS and, and trust what comes up, even if it seems goofy. Mm-hmm. You know, the chances are really good you're picking up on something. Yeah, yeah. You, you also talk about your work with the UN in, in the book, and you talk about how, how you've been using coaching techniques to help them deal with this difficult situation that many of, many of those folks find themselves in. And I thought it'd be nice to talk about that a little bit because um, a lot of our sales, uh, a lot of the listeners we have, um, are people that are in the role of sales management, and it's it's a very tough job. You've got salespeople, sometimes new new to the business, new to your company, working below you, um, and they're under all types of pressure, and, and they're notorious for, you know, having complaining spirits, so to speak. And then above you, you've got all the demands of leadership. So what are some principles that, you know, we could talk about both. I mean, you work with the UN, but also the coaching principles that might help them to sort of manage all, all that they've got going on? Well, one major coaching principle is asking questions rather than coming up with answers and to find out what's the game that the person under you is playing and the person over you. What are they playing for? We're all in this game of life with different reasons and needs and desires. And when you find that out and you can play for the other person's desire to be met, First of all, they're going to trust you more, and uh, they're going to play more for you to your needs. I mean, you don't necessarily go there as as that's the way that you want to um, to work with someone, but um, you want there you you want to make sure the culture that we're all in this together for each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. Um, it's interesting. The UN is such a non-sales culture. Uh, money is, has such an interesting place in it. it. It is, you know, no pun intended, really a unique culture in the world. It's its own animal that doesn't relate to really almost anything else that I've ever seen. But they are very values-driven at the core, and yet what's happening day-to-day is not. And that's why they wanted to bring a, a coaching methodology to the work that we do there, because people come there with great values. You know, it takes a lot to uproot from your homeland and, and go do something like this. And then uh, all, all that they sign on to, the charter, the Millennium Development Goals, all the documentation is just absolutely gorgeous. It's values-laden. It's, it's values-driven. And, and then there's what shows up every day. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very different. And you see this a lot in, in the workplace. We have our mission, and it looks gorgeous. Oh, it's just wonderful on the lunchroom wall. And then there's what your boss says to you that's totally antithetical to what this organization says it's about. And so when you have that gap is where you get the dysfunction and the entropy. And so what's happening at the UN is their gap looks a lot like hierarchy, protocol, and it, it looks like that in business a lot, too. Again, these are the companies that, that marry the, the methodologies and leave the people out. And when you're in a situation like that, Howard Behar has this concept called twisted in your own underwear. And uh, I see that a lot at the UN. They are so twisted in their underpants because, you know, they're following all the rules and regs, but 
the communication is stilted. There are silos all over the place. Uh, silo mentality is, I think, one of the biggest traps going on out there in the profit and nonprofit world is that mm-hmm. we have all this, these information tunnels that are not sharing. Uh, to create a larger culture with the sales force talking with higher-level management, you know, to, to see the team as one team, a problem often that no manager or salesperson can overcome is if they're functioning within a silo. If the organization yep. isn't functioning as a whole organization that, that's interwoven at seven levels and everybody's really playing from the same playbook and the mission is organically in everyone, it's not a question of the, or, the mission's on the wall and have we signed this person up yet to it or not and can we keep them on it. It's a question of is, does this mission live deeply and sustainably and with vitality in each individual and in the culture at large, then you've got hot people out there, and yeah. it takes a lot less management and a lot less training and a lot less pushing to meet goals and numbers. It, but so, it takes so a lot does, of trust in that. How does a CEO or how does a sales manager or how does a VP of whatever look at their company or look at their department and know that they've got people that are doing that, that are drinking the Kool-Aid, that are, that are really living the values and the mission of the company? Well, usually they can see it by their productivity. It's, it's, there are very, very, very clear connections to that. The best way I know is the tools that I bring into organizations, the Barrett cultural transformation tools, that they do an assessment, and you can see people's individual values, the values that they perceive in the current culture, and the values they desire in the culture. And you can, you can see on, a, on graphs and plots and charts, you can see where the alignment is. It's really all about alignment. And so if you see that someone's coming to work every day, but they're bringing about two-thirds of themselves to work because they're just not aligned with what's going on, then you can just tell that these are people that that either something needs to shift, and that's different for all organizations. There's no set method for what you do with that. There are lots of great methods for what to do with it, but it's all individualized and customized. And then if you see someone who's coming to work where their values, you know, maybe six out of ten values are what's going on with the organization, then they're bringing their whole selves to work. And if the organization can hold that, because it's a both end here, it's, it's not only is the individual productive, but can this container hold and feed and support and create the soil for this seed to grow from? Mm-hmm. So you can create a lot of synergy once you have people going in the right direction, and when you have people going in the wrong direction, the same thing will happen, that more, fewer and fewer people will be living by the mission. Is, that, is it contagious? Well, first of all, uh, the, my flags go up with the words right and wrong because, uh, you know, that gets into, the, that triggers all kinds of other conversations that I think skew the, the work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But when you have alignment, when you have everybody's coming to work aligned, they know what they're about, they know what each other are about, they know what the company, they, they, have, they have been a part of creating what the company is about, then wrongness is, is a whole different kind of conversation. Unfortunately, though, most cultures are still set up around that right-wrong thinking, and you get a lot of judgmentalism, and in, in the space of being judgmental, there's no listening going on, and you've just lost a big chunk of leadership capacity as soon as listening shuts down. Mm-hmm. So 
and if you see a lot of that kind of right wrongness going on, it's usually an indicator of a culture that's that's got some dysfunctions going on in it, and okay. that often you need some leadership coaching before you're ever going to get a really effective sales team. So you you must have worked with some companies where you have a leader that comes to you, and he's got this problem where where either the culture doesn't align right or where some people seem to be embracing it and others don't seem to be embracing the mission. What are some of the tips you give him? What are some of the things he or she would have to change pretty quickly to sort of to change that momentum and start things going in the right direction, oh, in a different direction? The most efficient way I've seen to do that is to, to do a, a values assessment because then, then you know what you're working from. You have a clear snapshot of what's going on. And that's that saves the most time. It's data driven, so everybody can see it. Everybody, it's an online assessment, so everybody goes online, and when the data is on the wall, they know that their data is in there, so people feel included, which is a huge step. Mm-hmm. And just day to day, you know, sometimes opening up a meeting with a check-in, how are you doing? Because you know what, if your secretary is about to lose his or her mother you're not going to get the kind of productivity, nor should you expect it, and it's time, to, even though you're the boss, to maybe step up a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that Howard Behar was saying, we probably had a few too many meetings at Starbucks. And I was so relieved to hear him say that, because I think at this point in our history, when we've been sort of overly young for all that we understand in our MBA programs and all that we've taught our leaders so far, to swing a little to that yin and maybe go a little extra kumbaya here and there to, to in a meeting and maybe an extra meeting because that's where you start to till this very rich soil. Mm-hmm. And that's when when the chips are down, you're not compelling people to stay. They're there because they're, the, the mission is integrated. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you want. You want dialogues with people. You want the, the CEO to be having informal dialogues to call people up, to stop by their desks, to hear about their lives, to, to you know, you don't leave your life at home when you come to work. I, that's an old myth. Mm-hmm. And so many people are still functioning on that myth, and it just trips them up. It trips really, really competent and good people up because they, they've bought into a fantasy. Yeah. Age-old fantasy, but it's it a is fantasy. <laughs> you, you know, one of, the, one of the sections when I was reading your, your, your portion uh, in Stepping Stones that I thought was, like, really good for us to talk about was your definition of success. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit um, because there definitely are some misconceptions out there. Um, it's, it's a lot of salespeople in particular have a lot of pressure on them to succeed, whatever that definition might be. Um, and a lot of managers have the same pressure, and a lot of sales organizations have the same pressure. Um, could, you, could you walk us through some of, the, 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 some of your thoughts on success? And, and some of those thoughts might be different than what people are used to. Yeah. Well, you said success, whatever that might be, and therein is the first problem. Everybody's mm-hmm. functioning from a different definition of success in a company, and that's really dangerous because you've got basically you're trying to hurt cats at one level or another because people are chasing different things and then sometimes success is very very narrowly defined as an end game and so we know that by defining success as a quarterly gain at all costs that we brought down an entire the best economy in the world mm. and uh, it, it's a it's an 
again, that's one of those myths that has so sorely beaten so many people up and lost so many family homes and, and caused so much suffering in this world. Success is not only that. I think there are seven levels of success. Success is not just one end game. You reach it and then you're there. Success is a little bit more like a carrot and stick. The most successful people I know, there's always the next, as they're getting to the next level, there's the next level and the next level. You know, the Olympian is always trying to beat the world record and then some, trying to mm -hmm. find some new way, even though how many new ways can there be to run around a track? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, we're, we're still finding new things about running around a track? Well, something like sales is so much more nuanced. We have eons to go before we ever get to any kind of real definition of success. So first of all, defining it as an end game is an issue, or defining it as any one thing is an issue. I think that there are seven levels of success, and this is basically based on Maslow's hierarchy and put together mm -hmm. through the Barrett work I've been talking about, uh, which I came to, by the way, because I was looking for the best work on values-driven leadership, and I was relying on their research for all my work at the UN, and eventually I realized that their tools for measurement were, were really the best in the world. So the first level of success is financial stability. So if you're going to be a leader, the first thing you have to make sure is that you get profits, that, that people are safe, that health is taken care of. And the second level of success is communicating, is relationships, that, again, you don't let conflict be out there. You don't try to manipulate people. You don't put a lot of blame. That whole right and wrong conversation can really mess up relationships. And when you don't have that, you don't have a, a basic in your organization. And the third level of success is performance. Are your systems in place? Do you, are you organized well? Is there pride? Are there best practices happening here? Is the company strong? Is, is there quality? Can, are you known for good stuff going on there? And the back side of that where you see entropy is where people turn performance into power plays or status plays. And that's a real trap in sales because so often there's the status and, and you have people pitted against each other and that yep. second level of relationships and it messes up ultimate high performance because we know that the highest performance comes in partnerships, not out of competition. Mm -hmm. And so the fourth level of success is continuous renewal and learning. It's uh, that you're a facilitator and you're an influencer and you're always transforming. Again, it's not success isn't an end game that you want to be accountable, but you also want to grow as people. You want to make sure that, that somebody who's, who's down there kind of struggling is getting fed on a personal level, that delegation is happening, right, that people feel empowered to make decisions, even if they're wrong, yep. that, that you want to be adaptable enough to let somebody make some wrong decisions because that's the only way you're going to grow a strong leader is if they have the ability to risk. And then the next level where we start to get into much higher order of success is with the fifth level, and that's internal cohesion. Do we have shared values? Do we have a shared vision? You know, are we all defining success in the same ballpark here? Are we transparent about that? You know, if I'm going to be working with the next person, do I know what his or her numbers are? Am I playing a crapshoot here? Or, you know, is there something, is there back, backstreet lobbying going on here? But, a good leader at this level will inspire people, will have openness, will have a lot of passion. And that's something that a leader should always be looking for is who's passionate. That's something, boy, 
you can develop that. You can make a lot of money off of passion, but you've got to nurture that spark to begin with before you can uh, capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And the sixth level of success is through partnership and mentoring. Is there something in place where people with more experience are coaching and mentoring people with less experience and where the people with more experience are in a position where they can be coached and mentored, um, not in the traditional sense because younger people don't always have as much to offer, but is there space for that fresh perspective to come back in? To, and is there community involvement? Is there environmental stewardship? Are there strategic alliances with other organizations? You know, Can the salesperson go to somebody who's doing something else and partner up in a way that, that's a win-win for themselves and for the client, a win-win-win? Mm-hmm. And the seventh level of leadership and the last level is to be the, the visionary, to have wisdom, to really be looking at humanity and the planet, to be playing a bigger game, you know, to have the really big dream, like what, what's your dream of a great earth? What, what does develop humanity that's, we talked about we sort of have to develop our own humanity to have that GPS that's going to be in, in gear when we're talking with a prospective client. But if you flex that muscle at the larger level and say, hey, what am I doing in my spare time? Or what is this company doing that says it's bigger than the widget I'm trying to sell? Because when, when it's only about that widget, it's awfully hard to get people's passion in gear day after day after day after day. Yep. And that's yep. when people resort to things like pulling power plays or manipulating into getting something, somebody to do something because they're not creating a bigger why. They're not creating a game worth playing in the mm-hmm. long run. And that has to do with being ethical, having long-term perspective, thinking about future generations, you know. If I know that what I'm selling is basically going to cost my grandchildren, well, how long can I, how much can I develop as a person if I have to stop every time I hit that wall? Yeah. If I have to turn a blind eye because I know if I come to work I'm basically doing damage, well, you know, at some level I'm going to slowly shut down and not develop into higher levels. If I know that management is may not be there today, they may still be doing some things that are polluting, but but their vision is that they're going to be responsible to future generations or something like that where they're demonstrating long-term perspective and compassion and where they're acting ethically, then, all right, I can sign on to that. I might not share every single value with them, but, hmm, okay, you know, that's, that's something that I can grow into. You know, you, you, you talk about that in the section on value uh, driven leadership, and, and you know, you say it's pretty self-explanatory, but then you you spend a lot of time explaining it because there is a lot to it. And you talk about the company who says uh, that you know, if, if we're going to talk about liberty, justice, or being a fair company, then we really have to we have to walk the talk. And um, I think you know, I don't know if there's studies on this, but it would be interesting. I know I've come in contact with a lot of companies who have a very very active uh, CEO who's involved with, you know, I'm thinking of a company here in Boston, New Balance. You know, he's very involved with a lot of charities, mm-hmm. very involved with, uh, you know, helping out underprivileged kids. And when, when, when a leader has that type of, it almost doesn't matter what it is. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but when, when, there's a difference between companies where there's something else running through the company other than just we make shoes. Right. Right. And you probably ran into that a lot more than I have. Right. Well, that really is the bottom line, and and people don't understand how much it influences the bottom line. And there are excellent studies out there that show us that there's no question that companies that play a bigger game are better companies, 
no matter how you measure them. Mm-hmm. So, so that might be something that, you know, I, I think even in a microcosm kind of way, when a sales manager looks at his team, you know, um, there, there's probably some value for him looking at things. You know, sometimes your world gets so small and you spend all your time talking about quota or numbers or forecasts. You know, why not lead your team and, and, and lead them in an effort that might, might, might not be to do with that? You know, let's do some work this weekend for a charity or let's get involved in a certain campaign to help, um, you know, a nonprofit in some way. Uh, it, there must be value even in a smaller level, even if my company's not doing it, can I do that for my team and, and have a good effect? Yeah, and can I make even the little choices that maybe are hard, but I'm going to go with it because this is what I say that I do. I think it was Southwest Airlines when all the airlines started charging for baggage. I forget what their mission is, but something like to give the customer a great time, and they went back to this, this mission that was well-developed, which most missions aren't all that well-developed, and even then, the CEO doesn't even often know the mission. It's unbelievable how many leaders don't know their own mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so how do you expect anybody to fulfill on it? Um, but, but what they did was they looked back and they said they wanted a great customer experience. Well, does paying for your baggage create a great customer experience? No. So that cost them a lot of money to say, no, we won't do this. Now what? You know, it requires a lot more creativity. It requires more meetings. It requires more chaos. It requires kind of falling into this sort of dark area of the yin that we were talking about that doesn't have the ABCD methodologies of the yang, but it requires more dialogue. It requires some more time without having answers, and I think that's what people are really afraid of often is not having an answer for a little while, mm -hmm. to be in the space of I don't know and I'm still asking, yep. and I'm not going to come to an answer for a while yet, and so that's okay. We're going to be in the space of creativity. So that's a big part of it. And looking where fear comes up, you know, that's that it's pretty much you're either in fear or you're in gear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. You know, I just looked at our clock, and we're just about coming to the end of our time slot here, so... Um, I, I, first of all, let me say thank you so much. You've had, you've had a lot of really great things to say that I'm sure people out there are sort of making connections and saying, I've got to find out more about this stuff. If, if someone wanted to reach you, what's the best way for them to reach you, Joni? They can go to my website at leaderfuledge.com, and I have on there an MP3 all about values-driven leadership, and there's so much in that MP3. So that's a, a complimentary download that people are welcome to download. Okay, great. And... Uh, that's going to bring us to the end of our 50 minutes, so we thank you for joining us this week. Our guest, once again, was uh, Dr. Joni Carley. If you would like to uh, read uh, in, in hard copy some of her work, it's in Stepping Stones to Success, Volume 1. She has a great chapter in there. And once again, the show is brought to you by Curlin and Associates. And uh, we really appreciate your time. We look forward to having you join us next week on Sales Talk Live. Thank you. You're listening to GlobalTalkRadio.com.